Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone. I'm Ikresh Kuflachima, your host for the New Books Network in Gender Studies. Today, I'm very pleased to welcome Dr. Jane Jeffer, G.L. Goldfein, and Rosa Albusi, who will talk about their book, Millennial Feminism at Work, Bridging Theory and Practice, published by Cornell University Press in 2022. In this book, Dr. Jane Jeffer has brought together recently graduated students from across the United States to reflect on their relevance of a feminist studies program um, in their chosen career paths. This book includes 17 chapters that are divided into five sections, corporate world, pedagogy, nonprofit organizations, health and medicine, and media. Thank you for joining us today. Um, Dr. Jeffer, Jail Goldfine, and Rosa Gussi, could you please introduce yourselves to our audience? Um, hi, nice to um, be here and thank you for inviting us. I'm Dr. Jane Jeffer. I'm a professor of feminist studies and literature at Cornell University. Rose. <laughs> Rose, um, I use there she, and I'm currently a fourth year medical student at Boston University. Um, planning to apply into obstetrics and gynecology. Um, I'm JL Goldfein. I'm an editor and a writer at the website Check Life. I was formerly a reporter at Paper Magazine, and I'm also a freelance writer uh, with clips in places like The Guardian, GQ, Vanity Fair, New York Magazine, um, some other places. And I mainly write about um, uh, culture and, and music. Oh, wonderful. Okay, so how did you arrive at the idea of this book? When did it start? I'll take that one since it was my idea. <laughs> so um, I guess it was spring of 2019, right? Giles, she was there. Um, Giles was my student at Cornell. Um, so as director, at that point I was director of undergraduate studies at Cornell. And I always get this question from students. Um, oh, I would love to become an FGSS major, but my parents or whoever authority in my life is asking me, what can you do with a degree in FGSS, Feminist Gender and Sexuality Studies? Um, so I'm always kind of turning this idea over, and, and it's interesting because so many of our alum do get great jobs, so I thought, why not bring them back to campus for a panel to talk about um, how they used their feminist theory degrees in getting jobs and then in the workplace. So. Um, we brought back seven of our kind of recently graduated students, including Jael. Um, some students uh, who had graduated, I would say, over the last 10 years, just to talk about that question. 
And the panel was so inspiring and so many people loved it that I thought, hey, why not do a book? So I didn't want it to just be Cornell students. So that summer I put out a call on different social media sites. I think Jael helped me with that, right? <laughs> Finding the best sites. And um, yeah, then just started getting essays from young people all over the country and came up with these 17 essays that you mentioned. Great. So um, talking about this public event at Cornell that you arranged in March 2019, what had motivated you to organize this event and what kind of work went into organizing it? Um, well, like I said, it was trying to um, promote the program, really, and convince students that there were you know, really interesting jobs they could get with degrees. And also, I think just personally for myself as a um, director to think through what we as a program could do to better equip students to face these kinds of um, job questions and questions about the economy because at Cornell at least we're based in the humanities and I have a background in the humanities I'm always kind of thinking wait you know we're really not doing enough to think through these kinds of material economic questions so it was a way for us as a program to try to do a better job at that. That's that's wonderful. Um, so for the book, what was the impetus for you to focus particularly on the millennial experience mm. in gender studies? I guess that just emerged from the essays that I got. I didn't really advertise it that way, but it was kind of like recently graduated, you know, feminist studies students. Um, and then as I read the essays and worked with the writers, I guess you could say the theory kind of emerged from the practice. And I saw that there really was a kind of, you know, generational thing going on here um, that I think both Rose and Jael can speak to probably better than I can. Well, the panel was really interesting because it came out, I think, like your intention was to show current undergrads what current, like, you know, past grads are doing, what kind of jobs they had. But then the panel, I feel like, ended up being a lot of us talking about how gender studies more informed like our personal and emotional lives. Um, I mean, some of the people on the panel work um, in, you know, in activism or in, you know, c- careers that have feminist purposes, but uh, many of us uh, didn't. I mean, and like, I, I feel like a lot of us, it just became like a critique of work, the panel, like all of us talking about the various like issues and struggles we'd run into and how feminist theory helped us like you know, deal with that, like, various career struggle, less than, like, oh, like, I, I am a journalist, I use feminist theory to write my articles. It was so much more like uh, feminist theory, kind of, um, it, I think we, we all talked a lot about our emotions. And that did emerge as a theme in the book, too. It's something Rose writes about in her essay, right? Like how, you know, university life is not perfect, but it is a site, and in our classrooms, at least, where we valorize the expression of feelings, right, and how this makes me angry or whatever, um, and it really struck me, particularly reading the essays, how difficult it is to to kind of be a full person on the job the way feminism endorses. Yeah, definitely. And I think it resonates with a lot of people and their experiences in the workplace to how they feel in a space that is like definitely gendered, even if, you know, it doesn't have maybe gender 
as the center of the pillars that it establishes itself on. Um, in the book, Dr. Jeffrey, you talk about citational choices in the introduction. Would you like to talk some about why that matters for a book that works as a bridge between theory and practice? And what is the value of thinking about these citational choices when we think theory's relationship to practice or work environments? Yeah, I mean, it was interesting to me in um, looking at, once I had all the essays together, who were the people most frequently cited? And, well, not surprisingly, Sarah Ahmed was cited a lot. Um, I used her work in the call for papers. But also, I'm looking for that part where it was um, with Jael, and we were just talking about Audre Lorde, and it was interesting that a certain kind of, I guess you would say, canon of feminist theorists emerged from these essays. So Audre Lorde was frequently cited. Um, uh, let's see, who else? Um, so this, I mean, Sherry Moraga, Gloria Anzaldúa, some of the kind of classics, you know, um, feminists, particularly women of color, who probably defined many of the intro to feminist theory classes that all the students took, still remain so relevant, right, and so powerful. Um, I think, Rose, you, you used Audre Lorde, right, in your essay. So like this kind of um, kind of passion of some of the uh, women of color feminists definitely infused the essays. So this, this is interesting to me when I think about how much of the book is, as you said in your questions, about the gig economy and capitalism that still all these um, kind of, yeah, classic feminist scholars and theorists who I think um, do bridge theory and practice. You think of people like Lord and Ansel Dua, who were really about that kind of theory in the flesh again, and that embodiment, you know, and that need to um, combine theory with activism, right? If we can think about practice as activism, that I thought it was really cool to see, you know, how many of the writers um, went back to those theorists. Then, you know, you get a lot of Judith Butler, you know, which. It's fine. I mean, I think Butler was incredibly useful for people who were talking about any kind of performativity. So the essays certainly show that um, there is a, you know, feminist theory, there's a common vernacular developing that's very powerful. I mean, I think the essays also show that it's still really hard to always enact that theory in the workplace when you're facing, you know, kind of all the obstacles that capitalism presents. Yeah, definitely. That's very true. Uh, you also talk about hard and negris categories, immaterial labor and affective labor. What are the implications of devaluation of affective labor and the pressure to not be angry or not to get emotional mm -hmm. in the work of this book? Yeah. Would this be a good place for you to come in, Rose, and talk about? We were just chatting about this question, and it is really complicated. I mean, I could say kind of what I was I could summarize what I was trying to get at in the introduction, and then maybe you could talk more particularly, Rose, about... Yeah, so I just think it's... A, I was trying in the introduction to kind of gloss at what I find to be a very interesting and complicated kind of discussion going on in academia, because Hardin Negri's work has been so influential, but some feminist scholars like Angela McRobbie um, are skeptical that, you know, Hardin Negri find some potential in the kind of ubiquity and of affective labor across the service economy or the gig economy. And, you know, so their argument going something like, um, 
maybe affective labor is no longer so strongly tethered to the feminine since we see across the service industry all genders you know performing affective labor and even though it's still not as highly valued um, as perhaps um, other kinds of labor the fact that it is so ubiquitous might provide an opportunity for the valuing of things that have historically been devalued like nurturing um, and you know things like kindergarten teachers do that usually don't get paid very well. So although they're certainly not romanticizing the denigration of affective labor historically, they are kind of pointing to the potential there. Whereas I think, you know, Angela McRobbie just comes right out and says, oh, that's not happening. You know, sort of still affective labor is seen as feminine and, and it's devalued. Um, so I think we see a little bit of all of that in the essays, you know, people saying, um, some of the essays saying that affective labor um, can be kind of rearticulated. Like I'm thinking of Kate Poor's essay about her work in a refugee center in South Texas and the whole nonprofit world, right? Like there's some, you know, kind of valuing of affective labor going on there. Uh, yet at the same time, there's also a lot of exploitation of people who do affective labor. So it's a, I think Rose can attest to now. It's a very complicated issue. Yeah. So I definitely am coming at this from, right, I'm kind of coming to the end of my time in medical school. I'm applying to residency. I feel like I've had all of these experiences um, on inpatient services and outpatient and clinic working with other care providers like residents, attendings, nursing staff, um, as well as like, you know, ultimately trying to provide care to patients. And I think that medicine is this really interesting place to analyze immaterial labor versus affective labor, because there is so much valuation, like in the world about like, what makes a good doctor is someone that is um, able to empathize, able to show compassion, able to understand what the experiences of the patient and, and help, you know, be alongside them as they go through it. Um, but then like in, you know, the experience of at least me as a medical student and um, the folks that I've talked to who are also healthcare providers, um, there's this valuation of, of exactly the opposite of those things. Those things are not what we are evaluated on on our board exams. They're not what we're, um, you know, they try to include it in the grading for, for our classes and our rotations. But, it, you know, how can you even really grade something like that? And then um, I think medicine overall, when you look at it, is this interesting place where um, there are aspects that map on to conversations going on about the service industry, this idea that the customer is always right, um, or, um, you know, that we have to be motivated by providing care for a patient, centering their experiences. And I think that on the flip side, that same narrative is used to justify a lot of the exploitation that happens in the field, where you're expected to work these um, wild hours, like, you know, 12, 15, 18, 24 hour shifts. Um, and you're supposed to kind of endure that exploitation because you're doing it for um, this like relatively marginalized um, group. When, when, you know, at the end of the day, you're overworked, you're burnt out, you're also not really um, you know, despite having a very specialized skill set, your labor isn't valued. 
Um, and then, you know, you zoom out and healthcare providers do have this enormous amount of power over the patients that they serve and um, wield that power in, in really vulnerable times in those patients' lives. And so I think just kind of on the whole, um, the conversation about labor immaterial or affective and then power generally just becomes really 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 complex and nuanced and and at least in medicine i haven't really seen um people really engage with that um past like you know talking to their peers or their friends um, there's just not very much discussion of what it means to wield that power or what it means to engage in that labor um or how to do so responsibly and it's just something that folks navigate for themselves Right. Thank you. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. Um, so engaging in these capitalist structures also leads us to questions of complicity. How has or how does this change in the gig economy or in the political economy of insecurity? I think we decided Jael would be best equipped to answer that question since she's working very much in the gig economy right now. Um, yeah, I'm really, I was really excited by your questions about the gig economy because I think both my spirit my experiences kind of in a professional nine to five and then in the gig they've both been had ambivalent and contradictory political experiences um but so yeah I'm a freelance uh I'm a freelance writer I have sort of an anchor day job that I work three days a week um and then I write freelance articles on the side but until uh I think December I was a full-time freelancer um so it's, it's interesting. So like, I mean, and, and yeah, I feel very, even I think ever since I entered journalism, I felt very much a part of this, uh, as you put it, the political economy of insecurity, just that like journalism is a very uh, unstable field. And um, I think it, it really goes both ways. Cause like, I think the experience of precarity can be really galvanizing or really paralyzing. Um, Cause in some ways, uh, I got laid off from a full-time journalism job and was sort of like plunged into gig work, um, like freelance writing. And in some ways that experience like was, I mean, in some ways like gig work and freelancing is hyper, hyper capitalist and hyper, hyper individualistic in that you're always like out in it for yourself. You have no coworkers. You're just like, when is my next, what is my next check? What is my next project? You don't have time to like, it's such like, you know, the hustle mindset, like you're not, um, you don't have really time to think about other people or solidarity. It's just like, um, I mean, that's not necessarily true, but I think it, it can be that way. And that's the way many gig workers, which obviously includes such a, such a wide variety of people. I mean, we're talking like from Uber drivers up to like social media influencers. Like that's, those are the people that like, when you say the gig economy, it kind of contains. So it's obviously like, there's not one experience. Um, but so in some ways, I think it was, led me to in a lot of complicity and that like I uh when I had a like you know there were simply I was so busy and so stressed that like I didn't feel like there was time for um organizing community like things in my life that I would like that you know I think are part of what a balanced life looks like for me um but then um at the same time like and now that I have more of like a day job, I am, I'm more involved in organizing. Like I work with like a tenants rights group in Brooklyn, like, and I, I simply have more time and like, I can attend meetings and 
like show up to stuff. And I didn't feel like I could when I was like, you know, scraping together like $250 articles. Um, so, but then at the same time, entering the economy has really helped me see myself and my place within capitalism clearly, I think, where I like getting laid off and, and, and plunged into this, you know, like was, it was like, oh yeah, I am disposable. My class position is not stable. I am one layoff away from like being like financially struggling. And like, I think in some ways that did give me like a lot of, that made me feel connected to everyone who um, like just faces like, like who is afraid of, yeah, not being able to like make ends meet. Um, So, and also like, it's also hard. um, You don't, there's not really the upper, that hyper individualism, there's not really an opportunity for like solidarity among your, your fellow freelancers or there are, but you have to like really seek them out. Like I'm a part of like different freelancers groups and those are definitely really helpful. And it's like really important to have people to just talk to about like what's going on. Um, But I think it was like, oh my, it was, it's both gig work. It is sort of that capitalist flexibility where it, it subsumes, like if in some ways, like, you know, gig work is like, oh, well, you're outside the nine to five. You don't have like a boss. It's empowering. I mean, I think that was sort of the, the capitalist pitch for gig work of like, oh, you can be your own boss. You don't have to work in an office. Like, but then it is, I think, just has been subsumed into like this hyper individualist pursuit of self-empowerment and there it in some ways makes you know you can't form a union it's really you can't form there are freelancers union but they don't really have a lot of power um so in some ways like it's just like oh let's take all the workers and put them in their own homes so they can't talk to each other or organize or form a union and i mean people are finding amazing ways to organize as freelancers gig workers like you know doordash workers like there have been amazing organizing efforts but it does uh like in the physical organizing organization of how people work in the gig economy it, it is is um difficult <laughs> so i think it cuts both ways where it kind of gave me a political identity that's galvanizing and also uh gave me no time or energy for like to for political analysis <laughs> yeah definitely. thank you so much for sharing that but that is exactly um i think hard and negro is looking for the passage but i don't think i quoted them where they say you know, affective labor has this potential, as you said, Jael, to connect you to everybody, right? Um, so that, you know, you asked about complicity. So, of course, we're all complicit, right? And there's no outside to capitalism. Um, so resistance is always going to be mounted from within. And so is there some potential uh, in this new kind of service economy to see how we are? Most of us, anyway, not all of us, are connected um, and yet what you say, Jal, is also interesting because although there is the potential for connection, particularly after COVID or in the midst of COVID, everybody's working in their own individuated spaces, right? So that was something Gerda Negri didn't really, you know, we're, weren't able to foresee, you know, that what happens in the gig economy when everybody's just working in their homes. Yeah. I mean, it is, it is like, I talked about what a big category gig work is like, and it, it, it's very exciting to think there could be some potential of like connecting everyone from like Uber drivers to content creators who like work on social media and to be like, everyone is in this economy of purity where at, you know, at any point you could be thrown away or like not, you know, 
in, in some ways it's very flattening to connect like gig economy, like working class gig economy um, workers and then millionaire influence. But like, it, it, it's like, oh, if there, if there was that thread and we could find it, like there could be, you know, a revolution because <laughs> like collectively that is just such a, such a massive group of people that now all sort of do the same job or now all sort of in the same economy. Um, but I don't know how we get there. I think, yeah, there's, there's a lot of organizing that needs to happen before we have a have an Uber driver to influence a revolution. <laughs> but you know what's so interesting that it reminds me of um, is being a single mother and well, being any kind of mother and feeling completely isolated at home with my little kid um, and knowing that there were all these other parents in the same position and yet not having any way at all to connect to them. I don't know, that just struck me as you were talking, like there, there is so much potential there for common experiences to organize, and yet there's really the material structure of the home and the way in which we live our lives as these nuclear families, for one thing. Um, our nuclear workers, I suppose now, <laughs> makes it so hard to organize. And you were saying the same thing, Rose, right? Like in the medical profession, people are not organizing. They're just working their own individual, I mean, they really, you really don't have any time left to organize. Yeah. I mean, like I, I even, I, I've talked to a couple of folks about this, right? And I think, especially just because, you know, my experience in medicine so far, at least has been based in like institutions. And so I think I very often see in parallel, like graduate student unions trying to, you know, organize and, um, I just there's less of that that I've seen in medicine. I used to go to like DSA meetings and talk to folks about what it would look like for residency programs to have unions. And I know a few do, um, but it's just remarkably difficult. Like you're working these hours where like, you know, you can't really organize in addition to the work that you're doing. This is just very difficult, like intellectually and emotionally taxing work to do to then kind of outside of work when you're already struggling to just kind of perform basic bodily functions really like on top of it organized to end your own exploitation and then i think that um very similar to to nonprofit work very, like there's this idea that if you don't want to work those hours or you can't work those hours it is some sort of personal weakness if you don't want to experience that exploitation it is indicative of a lack of dedication to patients that, you know, the way to wield your power responsibly is to kind of give yourself entirely to this career. Um, and there's not really much interrogation of, of it as a job or it as, as not kind of being like the, the defining quality of your identity on this earth. Um, because, you know, it, 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 it just, you know, the narrative that you hear is just that that means that you're not dedicated. That means that you don't care. And if you don't care enough, then you're not a good enough doctor. Um, and so there really is this sense that um, that organizing is just, it, there's so many things that go into making organizing in, in medicine very, very difficult. Yeah, definitely. And you work for such long hours too, like, you know, along with being just so emotionally trained at the end of it also, like then how do you make time for that when... The whole goal is just basically, you know, like to keep you busy, I guess. 
Um, so you already kind of like touched upon some of these things that I'm going to ask about in the next question. Um, Joel, you already mentioned like capitalism and its flexibility. You talk about in the book about this as well. Uh, and um, Dr. Jeffer comments on that, that it has incorporated or diluted feminism. What are the ramifications of this flexibility for the feminist workers with multiple jobs or freelance work in the contemporary gig economy? And what does that mean or what did that mean for the contributors to this book at large? Um, I think this is going to address your question, but what I was thinking about when Rose and Gile were talking is just one feeling I think that you get if you read read the book from start to finish or even jump around and just kind of see the themes that emerge from the 17 essays. It's definitely one of loneliness, you know, and individuated labor and kind of, um, I won't quite say nostalgia because, you know, they're too young to be nostalgic maybe, but sort of a longing for that community that they had in undergrad. Um, and I, you know, that is one thing I love about um, the FGSS program. It's a small program. I know all the students. The students pretty much know each other. Um, and it really does function as a community within uh, an academic space. Um, and I think most of the contributors found that in their undergrad education. Not to say that it was perfect, but um, Giles' essay really speaks to this, you know, to kind of the sense of community you felt at, at Cornell. Um, and that that's so hard to recreate, as, as both Rose and Jael were just saying, in whatever workplace, actually, I don't, I can't think. Well, one one of the contributors does talk about, as Jael was saying, um, some organizing that's going on in freelance journalism. Um, that's, let's see, Reina Gattuso um, talking about how freelance journalists are trying to organize. But definitely that was the sense um you know, that as Jav was saying, there are some kind of exciting things about being in a flexible economy. And this is um, Angela McRobbie's book, too, talks about this. It's called Be Creative, right? So in her work in London with um, her students in the kind of fashion industry, there is this kind of um, dream of being able to, as Jav said, set your own hours, um, do your own thing, not have a boss, all that kind of stuff. And I guess that's another thing that, that characterizes the millennial kind of creative workforce. I have an older son who's one of these, I have a younger son and an older son, and the older son is a creative writer trying to make a living selling his novels in Minneapolis and, of course, can't make a living but still trying to, right? So there's this all this excitement about what it means via social media or whatever to exercise your creativity. Um, but that that's so hard. I think we're just kind of repeating this theme. It's so hard to do by yourself and in, in an economy that doesn't support any kind of creative labor. So. Well, I'm glad. Yeah. I, I think like the first thing that this question brought to mind for me were, um, I think like all the palliative things that like capitalism has given us to help us tolerate the precarious workforce, which I think include like sort of like self-care and wellness. I think also like the internet, which is this steam valve for so much anger and so much rage and like so much passion that just, it just dissipates into nothing where it could be like channeling towards movements. 
Um, and obviously, like social media, it's very complicated. But I, I mean, I, yeah, I, I'm online. I have like being online is part of my job. And like, I just see the way that like it, it makes people feel so impotent, or it, like it, it really takes the teeth out of it. it yeah, I, I mean, this like, I think it's hard to. I think, yeah, I think social media is one thing. And, and also like social justice, online social justice, I think is a big steam valve where like you tweet angrily about something and you feel like you've done something or like there's this sense of like collective burnout online of people talking about how much like everything sucks, but then it just goes nowhere. So um, I think some of like that capitalist flexibility was saying, okay, well, if we've made work so much worse than people, for people, what, how will we keep them happy? And then I also think there's like, there's other things like um, just like, like, I mean, in a city, just like hedonistic behavior, like I'm just like, yeah, I think like, I like the lack, like if my boyfriend is an architect. So like the lack of third spaces where like you can have communities and instead like, it's like work bar exercise home. Like that is like life in the city for like young professional material, managerial class workers. And there's no, um, room really for community outside. Like my closest, I mean, I have many, I most, most of my closest friends I meet in college. Um, it's not like very easy to like build community or make friends. So I think, I think capitalism has been very clever as, as it invented the gig economy and, and made work so much less stable and so much worse and made it so much easier to pay people so little. And it, it, it it's really come up with very clever ways to keep people from revolting but then okay at the same time there are a lot of amazing like there isn't like a brand like the labor movement is like more vital than it has been in a long time like in journalism they're like almost every major magazine and publication has a union how effective they've been in actually changing those workplaces is like up for debate like my boyfriend's an architect his uh like the first architecture union drive in in like 60 years was this past year at his old firm it lost but like it's like okay well well where will we be in like 30 or 40 years so there are there are really exciting things and i do hope we're sort of at the beginning of like a very long arc revitalization of the labor movement um that could really massively change things um but yeah that's that's my sort of thoughts on how 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 tricky and and flexible capitalism has been when it comes to gig work Definitely. Um, and I think people are maybe already are trying to just kind of like wrestle with the ideas, like the different ways in which it could be done. It just uh, reminded me of uh, last year's Reddit organizing against the stock market. I'm not sure like if you all are familiar with that, where, you know, like, I mean, it was sustainable for like one, two weeks or something, but then it just kind of like dissipated because... I guess um, it just doesn't like build that kind of pressure if it's not like in a physical space where, you know, like there are like, people who are present and uh, people who, I guess, like have more control within a space. So maybe you, there, you know, in future some way there will be an effective way of like doing all of this organizing. Yeah, um, that's so, right. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. Go ahead. Uh, I mean, like, you were talking about like the Reddit GameStop, like where all the like you guys know about this, like all these like yeah guys on Reddit basically like figured out how to like short sell a like a venture capitalist firm, and they were sort of successful. But I, I feel like even that, like I think that is actually a part of that steam valve of social media, where like you do weird little things like that, and it kind of makes you feel better, but you didn't ultimately win or do anything. Like I guess they like 
cost some venture capitalists some money, but ultimately I think the people in it were all just trying to make money themselves. I don't think there was like a real, it was a pretty, it was a, it was a complicated thing. I wouldn't necessarily position it as something optimistic. I mean, but maybe I think I'm just, I'm very cynical about, yeah, the internet. Yeah, I understand that totally. (laughs) Uh, So so coming to uh, Dr. Jaffer, you talk in the book about students having the opportunity to try out theory in the workplace before graduating. What does or what would this mean for the workplace? And do you have any suggestions for how could academics go around doing this? Have you tried anything similar to this in your own classes? Yeah, yeah, actually. Um, a few, I think three years ago, we got what's called an engaged Cornell grant. Um, and with that money, I was able to... Um, start this, or it's not actually a program, but um, the, the whole point of Engaged Cornell, some Cornell alumni gave a whole bunch of money to Cornell um, and said the goal of the initiative is to have every single Cornell undergraduate engage in some kind of community service, a word I don't really like, but community, I would prefer activism, um, before they graduate. And so we got $10,000 and I teach classes on migration and detention. And um, I was able to use that money to set up a a partnership with Justice for Migrant Families, a group in Buffalo that visits people being held at the Buffalo Federal Detention Center. And so um, it's a program, a student became a student activist group. We've regularly visited, although COVID halted, in-person visits, people being held there. Um, We had a big social media campaign for the release of one woman that Jayal also worked on. Um, I'll use the name Elizabeth for her, um, who we got um, students mounted a huge campaign for her release, and we're going to claim credit for getting her released, although you never know with ICE why they do certain things. Um, So that's been really great because, and it's housed in FGSS, of which I'm really proud because, um, you know, I want to make the connections between feminist theory and social justice issues that perhaps don't directly touch on gender and sexuality, but have more to do with migration and xenophobia. Um, And so um, some of the students in that group, um, it's called CADA, the Cornell Anti-Detention Alliance have gotten internships with different immigrant rights groups. I can think of three students even this summer who are in that group who have great internships with various kind of nonprofit legal groups working on um, immigration and detention. Um, and they want to go to law school. So I feel like we're, you know, Jael actually took the very first incarnation of that class in 2015, right? Yeah, I, I feel envious of your students that got to, or like that, I feel like it's what you did with um, the the campaign around Elizabeth and the detention center. Like, I mean, seeing that you can win is such a powerful experience. And like, it's amazing that you, like all of those students, your students like walked away with that experience. Cause I think like, I, there is so much cynicism and like just getting the chance, yeah, to practice the theory and then win is, is like unbelievable for undergrads. Yeah. Like, there's so much telling you that you can't win. There's so many, there's so many losses. It's like, yeah. Well, now that I'm remembering it, you had an internship as well after that class, right? Like you, you yeah, worked, I worked, yeah, I worked with a, 
the um, farm workers clinic at the mm-hmm. law school, just doing like research for them for a semester, which was which was really cool. Uh, we lost uh, that um, appeal, mm-hmm. but it was it was really cool. Yeah. So we're constantly trying to think of ways um, through internships and activism. Um, we're doing. Was talking to Rose as well about all the stuff around the you know, Roe v. Wade and all the horrible stuff going on there. So we've got a whole bunch of um, events planned this fall um, with Planned Parenthood and the Women's Resource Center on campus. Um, So there's all kinds of ways, right? Feminist studies really lends itself to engagement and activism. We just have to be more assertive about that. Rose, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Oh, are you muted, Rose? Can you hear me right now? Okay. Um, yeah, I was going to say that in the introduction when um, you mentioned what you were just describing, um, like these opportunities for advocacy in, um, in undergrad, um, you talked about how um, it gives students the opportunity to kind of think through what it means to advocate for people without appropriating their voices. And I think that so much of my experience in gender studies was also um, thinking through those questions. And I think that that's what ultimately brought me to medical school and medical training. And um, I still think about those things as I like look towards going into obstetrics and gynecology. Um, and I think that my studies in gender theory are what gave me the historical background to understand kind of how racism and sexism and homophobia and all these forms of oppression have um, really uh, defined the interventions that, um, you know, we we do to bodies that, you know, quote, empower them. So like the racist eugenics history behind birth control or so many of the um, surgical interventions that we have and how they were developed and tested on um, like enslaved people, um, incarcerated people, the ways in which we um, historically have, like, you know, tried to, you know, limit people's reproductive potential in order to give them access to safe housing, um, and how that kind of also um, reinforces all of these oppressive structures in our life. And then, of course, right, with what you just said, like Roe v. Wade, we see these rights actively being deteriorated before our very eyes. And so um, definitely gender theory, like I, I feel like I had the opportunity in undergrad to think about those things. And I have the opportunity as a medical student to do something about those things. Um, in Massachusetts, where I'm based, um, the Roe Act was passed gosh, like a couple of years ago now, and that expanded abortion access in this state, even as um, the procedure itself was um, already protected in the state constitution, thankfully. But I mean, that legislative advocacy um, was remarkably difficult, even in a blue state, to, to argue to folks that, um, you know, people under the age of 18 still deserve to have access to that care without needing to appeal to like their parents or a judge, um, trying to get um, that type of care, like funded under the safety net insurance that we offer in this state, so on and so forth. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think that all of that work is stuff that I wouldn't have been able to engage in as mindfully if I didn't have um, my background in in gender studies. Um, and I think that that background has, you know, I, while I didn't have the same type of kind of concrete um, 
practice uh, built into my 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 classes. Um, I, I I just I wouldn't have been able to think about those things at all in these spaces because frankly, like very few people are. Um, I, in in the grand scheme of things, uh, you know, people don't come to this type of work with that background and with that historical knowledge. Um, and it's kind of it's you know we're in a position as as healthcare providers and for me at least as a future physician where we will be doing interventions to bodies and um and and a lot of folks don't know what weight those interventions hold um in in a sociopolitical sense because that's not really part of the training in this field um and i'm grateful that i have gotten that experience yeah I think like that kind of engagement also just gives us an opportunity to think about how we can just manage or work through all these emotions that we feel within the workspace. Like we learn about these things, like how to read the workspaces and like how to just kind of, you know, um, find the origin or the things that incite these emotions within us. But then like, what do you do about that in our workplace? So I think like just having this experience with community um, activism can really help just process all of that stuff as well, maybe. Um, so community building and organizing in the school and in the workplace, can both of these be mutually inclusive, both in the maybe like workplace outside of that, anywhere? Because Dr. Jeffer, you talked about, you know, like feeling this loneliness or like being alone as a single mother and child at Rose, you are talking about uh, building a community or not being able to do that, like when you work in the gig economy, as opposed to also like not only, you know, like just have friends, but also like have friends who are like centered around maybe like one shared goal, one ultimate, you know, like political idea that they wholeheartedly support. So how easy or difficult do you think it is to do both of these things simultaneously? I mean, I think we've kind of been not romanticizing academia, but pointing to all the kind of potential of academia. But at the same time, academia also valorizes individual labor. Um, and I often, Giles probably heard this story, but I often tell my intro to feminist studies classes this story about how um, I was in graduate school when I got pregnant and I was living in Chicago at the time, and I was also working with um, the committee in, in solidarity with the people of El Salvador, which was a pretty radical group and another kind of radical political group. And um, when I got pregnant, this the Prairie Fire radical political group I was working with said, oh, here's your childcare team. And I had five people who, when I had the baby, um, automatically started providing childcare so that I could keep doing political work and go see a movie every once in a while or something. But so the whole idea was the personal is political, right? Which is the feminist mantra. On the contrary, when I got to grad school with this little baby then, um, when I returned to grad school with this little baby, nobody offered to help, right? Because in grad school and then even when I got my first job as a professor, with a five-year-old, uh, again, as a single mother, nobody offered to help, right? Because at least in the humanities, um, everything is contingent on your individual production of work, right? So nobody saw the kind of connections between the personal and the political that the activist groups had. And I think 
Well, you know, programs like FGSS do a pretty good job of breaking down that idea that your um, identity is contingent on your individual publications. That's still the primary mode in academia, right? Like everybody's trying to get their own work published. So even academia, at least um, for professors, is not really a site that valorizes community organizing. Um, yeah, I just wanted to throw that in because there's certainly lots of problems with academia as well. Definitely, that's very true. Yeah, I've heard so many stories of just, you know, people feeling extremely lonely when they are working inside the academia. Because even when you join a new job, there is rarely you know, any opportunities for you to interact even with your colleagues, except like once a semester like this party or like this meeting or something like that, where once again, everybody's just kind of like rushing to go do their own thing. So thank you for sharing that and just pointing to that. I, I don't know if we're like short on time, but yeah, I I mean, I don't, is the question, can you organize or like what just what is organizing like in the workplace? Like, Yeah, just kind of like thinking about building a community for yourself and yeah. then organizing politically. Yeah, it was, so I, when I was full-time staff at a magazine, um, like it, it was interesting. I had a very mixed experience with organizing and that like, I mean, a lot of uh, publications had sort of like internal crises during the George Floyd protests of like, um, just like people outing racist um, and exploitative behavior. Um, and like, I was a part of like one of my, it's a bit of a complicated story, but basically like I was a part of a, like a union drive and that like ultimately led to me getting laid off. So like, that was like, it didn't work. It was a failure. It was a failed campaign. A bunch of people got laid off. Um, but then at the same time, I actually, it was such an empowering experience and like I would, it didn't make me think. And I think even just like getting laid off and seeing that like we organized enough to scare for the executives was like very empowering. And like, I think um, it taught me, like it showed me that I've, I would do it again. And like, it wouldn't, it didn't, it was, it showed me both how nearly impossible it is to like successfully organize a workplace. I mean, not that we were go- like, I mean, we didn't have, but then like, I also think like organizing with your coworkers really like is about, is, the cure to that like loneliness and that alienation. And it made me feel, even though I got laid off, I felt so much more empowered than like I'd felt in my last few jobs where like, I didn't, I just felt, I hated so many things about all the workplaces and just felt like there was nothing I could do less. I like, if, unless I, or I would risk my job security, but then it was like, I did risk my job security and it was okay. And I mean, I was on unemployment during the pandemic. So they were like specific. And like, I have, like, I'm from a middle-class family. Like, so I certainly have safety nets. I'm not saying like, Oh, it's fine. Like everyone can just, but like, I think uh, sort of, it definitely broke something for me where like any, uh, it, it's worth it. And it like, even if you fail, you're like, you are building towards like building power that is threatening to authority. And like anytime that, like you actually see that, that's so powerful. I don't know what this, not really a conclusion to the story, but it's saying like uh, organizing is so hard and also so, and like it's it, it's understandable that people don't do it. It's also like, but also, I really think it would it, if people in their loneliness and their education could like, I mean, obviously that's like a sort of Marxist fairy tale, but like, figure out that the thing that would make them feel better <laughs> was organizing. Um, that would be very powerful. 
Yeah, and I, I think that that is like relatable to the experiences I had working at Dana-Farber as well. Like ultimately what helped me survive that workplace was the community that I built. I built that community through the emotions that I experienced because it showed the ways in which I was politically minded and could connect with other people. Um, no, we did not like organize. Um, it was just like one lab, but but my like my experience of empowerment or survival was through that community. And I think that all of organizing relies on building community, right? Like the, um, the, uh, yeah, that's kind of the nature of it. Like that bell hooks quote that like love is an ethic that must motivate a feminist actions. And then like love being a thing that ties a community together and enables you to transform spaces because you have that type of bond of solidarity or, or, connection with other people where you can see the problems that are going on and, and identify them together and work together, right? Like all of, all of organizing relies on community. I think what I find interesting about that is because it, it allows you to kind of identify the, the ways in which workplaces or institutions in my, in my experience, at least like still being a student, um, chip away at forming community because they make it impossible to organize. So much of my experience as a medical student has been one of isolation, more so in some ways than even like moving to a new city out of college and, and getting that job at Dana-Farber. Um, I think that my experiences that I talk about in the essay were ones that are, you know, really widely relatable for folks just out of college, like new city, you don't know anyone, how do you meet people, like there are apps, there are these kind of um, loosely defined kind of networks that you can meet someone and then meet another person and kind of hope that you find a community to fall into. But that takes time and you're isolated the entire the entire time you're working on that. My experience as a medical student has been one of, of actively people in power creating structures that keep us isolated from each other, which is very different. Um, you go through your rotations in medical school and you're not necessarily interacting with um, students all the time. Sometimes you're the only student assigned to a certain spot or a certain service. Um, and then maybe you're there for like a week or two, you're this transient person on the workforce. So the folks that you're working with don't necessarily get to know you, you don't get to know them, you don't necessarily stay in touch. The cohort that you're moving through medical school with, they're broken up all over the place in these different rotations. You know, you hope that the, the the few connections that you do make are usually ones that kind of are trauma bonding, where you go through a particularly awful rotation, or you see something that's particularly like devastating emotionally, and you happen to be around other students that will will feel the same way, and you can connect with them. Organizing under those circumstances is remarkably difficult. I made the parallel point earlier about how some aspects of medical school are, are um, comparable to like graduate student unions. The big difference there, though, is graduate students get a stipend and graduate students, there is kind of a, an argument to be made that they are workers. Um, I am a worker, right? Like so much of the labor that occurs in hospitals is actually on the backs of the free labor that's provided by medical students who are learners. And even when you become a resident physician and you are a doctor, 
Um, your labor is is defined as as you are a trainee. Like this is how you learn to do the job. And so another way in which um, the work you do is devalued, even as you have a salary. But that that's what makes organizing difficult, right? Is you can't really um, you can't really make the argument as a medical student to, for like a union because what are you you what what is the union that you are trying to make? Like you are not a worker, you are a student and you are paying to be here. And if we do not want you here, you will just get expelled. You will get kicked out. That's not a problem at all. Um, and so being in medical school, not really having that, that ability to call yourself a worker, not really having a stipend, being a student um, is in of itself kind of a really specific uh, type of precarity because you are disposable. There's a million medical students that would take your spot. And that's true for residency. And there's this bottleneck that goes on um, as you progress through this career where there's more medical students than there are residency spots than there are spots. Like, so at any point, you can just get dropped off if you speak up too loud or, or you know, um, and then and then you're just saddled with $300,000 of debt and no career prospects like that, you know, yeah. that's so crazy to like, you're paying yes. so much to be there, but you're also doing so much work. I mean, just like for me after college, I feel like understanding myself as a worker was like so important. And like, I feel like I kind of stopped thinking of myself as a feminist. I mean, not, not as a feminist, but it, I mean, in college, I feel like being a feminist was a, was a huge locus of my identity. And then after school, I became so alienated from that. But like, reconnecting with an idea of myself as a worker and as a part of this larger struggle was like really, really mobilizing and important. And like, I, like completely is like just seeing myself as a part of this network with other workers, even though we did different kinds of, like was really, so I think it'd be very strange to be in this nebulous limbo of being right. a student and totally, a you, worker. And yeah. You graduate medical school and then you become a worker. Like you're a physician, but you're a worker. But you have no, no, no experience in thinking of yourself as a worker. And you're fully in your late twenties, if not your thirties. If you know, some people in my class are in their forties. Like plenty of folks have families. Those folks, you know, usually have like gap years that they've done before medical school. But the vast majority of the workforce that enters residency. These are not people with like necessarily very much experience as a worker. I have two years and that's like, you know, a lot of folks have similar experience, but I have two years of myself as a worker. Uh, the vast majority of my life, I'm a student and I'm a student who, you know, all of the disenfranchisement that comes with thinking of yourself as a student, a cog in the wheel of this larger institution that's turning out knowledge production or, or labor um, and, and, very few skills with how to combat oppression in that context, because why would the institution teach you those skills? Like the classic, like master's tools won't dismantle the master's house. Like I, why would medical school teach me how to advocate for myself as a worker when the whole basis of me being in medical school is to exploit my labor as a trainee? Does, you know? Um, it's it, and, and so, yeah, you, you, you create resident workforces and attending workforces that, aren't aren't able they don't have the tools they don't have the time to to do any of the stuff that we're talking about right now that's true definitely would you uh, like to talk a little bit about your um chapter Jaya? my chapter was really about like how 
I mean, I think like when I went to look for the topic for this essay, I was like, you know, it should have been a, a story about how I became a feminist journalist. Like that is the story that would have made sense. And it was sort of about uh, recognizing how my very misplaced, I think like class anxiety and also deep seated loyalty in like ways I didn't understand to just like uh, capitalist I mean, neoliberal capitalism, where I was like, just very committed to having a professional job and like, like, launching myself into like the workforce, like, which led me to I basically just take like a random job I didn't want as a publicist, um, at like a music PR firm. Um, which is like, I'd been so I like, and and in that job, which was very, very, um, I mean, it, it, it doesn't compare to obviously other kinds of exploitative work, but it was just um, very uh, long hours, a very abusive boss, and kind of just, you know, your average, just like heinous long hours uh, and doing deeply, deeply meaningless work. Um, and how that experience of that made me so cynical about feminism. Like feminism felt irrelevant to my life when I was like, I don't understand how to like, or at least, I mean, even though like it had been the center of my identity in college and I was like trying to figure out how I got there. And I think, I, I honestly think I did a lot of work while writing this essay in, in, in answering the question, which I think was two things, which was discovering like my intent, like how, just how deep I think like, like your like capitalist logic can run in you even if you've had a political education of like I think I was just I was very scared I like of the sort of like recession era lore about like you know being an unemployed liberal arts graduate and moving in with my parents and like so like really my I was single-minded I just wanted to like get a job and like move to a city after school and like I didn't I didn't critique that or analyze it at all and like I think so it's sort of about like I, I had a lot of like shame and guilt and I didn't understand like looking back and it was really helpful to work through that and I think like and also a lot of my essay was about feminist ideas about happiness and I think like I'd been pursuing a vision of happiness that was promised to me by capitalism which was like this is the way to be happy this is what a good life looks like this is how to be successful and like um I think like but I was so but ironically I was unhappier than I had ever been and like so it um, I felt both like a failure of capitalism and also a failure at feminism and like it left me in a very dark place. And I think I, I mean, the, the, the end of the story is just that I, I quit the job and like found a more fulfilling career and I'm working towards like, um, you know, balance between doing something meaningful and making money and all that. But like, um, I think I, it, it made me reflect I, on my experience of becoming a feminist in college, which was like, I, I loved college. I was so happy in college and I became a feminist and I started taking gender studies classes when I was an undergrad. And so I think like, in some ways my feminism had always been quite selfish because it made me really happy. And like, I don't, I don't think like at, at the same time, like as Sarah Ahmed says, like being a feminist requires being unsettled and unhappy with the world and being willing to like pursue, um, you know, your political commitment sometimes over your own, needs and happiness not to not to an extent of like oh like everyone needs to like be an or a full-time organizer like burning themselves out all the time but like uh 
I think I just like recognized a certain protectiveness and selfishness around my happiness that was actually really detrimental to me. And, and, and Ahmed, I think really helped me understand that. Um, and I'm trying to think like where the essay actually goes. It's a bit like, it's quite, <laughs> um, yeah, I think, but then I think ultimately if I didn't, if I didn't study, even though I should never have ended up in this position in the first place, I think my feminist education and feminist analysis and feminist commitments were sort of what helped me escape from that. And like, just, I think, I mean, like the shame I felt were just like, this is not what I want. This is not like who I want to be. Like, it's not how I want to spend my time. Like, I think was a result of like my undergrad education. And I think, and but I think my essay is really about the process of trying to figure out how to like build a sort of like political analysis of, of capitalism um, after being like <laughs> becoming really politically cynical. Um, and I don't, but yeah. yeah. And I think reading Giles' essay and working with you back and forth on the drafts really did help me also think through how, um, a gender studies program could do a better job of addressing that kind of um, catch-22, right? Because on the one hand, we want students to be happy, you know, as undergrads. We want you to feel like um, these spaces are safe spaces where you can express your emotions, right? And and just feel like com- coming into yourself as feminists, but at the same time, I realized, um, you know, we need to do a better job of preparing students for the workplace, right, where these things are going to be very difficult. And how can we anticipate them? Like, I remember one student on the panel, Elaine Trafford, who went to work for, um, well, I won't say who she went to work for, but in the went right from being an FGSS double major in history and FGSS to a job where after about a year, she realized like she was getting paid a lot less than her coworkers for the same kind of job, same kind of work. And so she wanted to negotiate for a salary increase. And she was like, I had no idea how to do that. And I remember as, as a director professor, I thought, oh my God, I've never had to do that. And it never occurred to me to, you know, talk to students about how to do that. And so there's this kind of sense of, you know, faculty and professors, we rarely think of ourselves as workers, I think, in that kind of sense that most of our students will have to. So it does require um, us as faculty to recognize this really privileged place we're in and, and not to assume that talking about things like negotiating for a salary are not part of, you know, the life of the mind is... Rose and I were talking about before, like where, you know, schools like Cornell or University of Chicago or probably lots of of schools think that um, in the humanities, at least, you shouldn't talk about that kind of crass stuff like salary negotiations. But why not? I mean, we are workers, you know, so why shouldn't we um, acknowledge that students have these particular needs as well? Yeah, I mean, not even so much as like, oh, how to negotiate a salary, but I think just like, and I mean, this, I don't know how some of this might just be personal to my own blind spots and, and biases, but just like, uh, I don't think I left college with an understanding of myself as like a capitalist subject or just like what 
I didn't know what capitalism would be like. And I mean, I just was privileged and insulated from it um, until that point. But like, I think it's quick. It I, I just don't want like young feminists to be like crushed <laughs> by how um, miserable like it can be and how you have to like, just, I think like, I think it was like building a resilient and flexible political analysis that could kind of take in the ways that like, cause also like, it's not like, Capitalism is changing very rapidly and like, and it's, it's very tricky. And like, just it, I, 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 yeah, I don't think in, I don't think my, I didn't have a political analysis um, kind of big enough to necessarily like settle my experiences right away. Um, Thank you so much. And, uh, you know, I'm sorry for getting you all so early on Zoom or like Zencaster. No, thank, thank you for the opportunity to talk about the book.